0: Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and M.B. Back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. I'm so pleased to be back with you guys. I missed you. Um, you know, last week was a holiday, it was the fourth. And so we took some time to just, you know, chill out with some friends and family, our kids, and let them swim and have a good time, have some good barbecue. So we took that time off, and we hope that you guys enjoyed your fourth or however you spent your day off from work. Um or school okay so we missed you I had to come back MD will be joining us next week but I had to come back get us back into the routine and tell y'all a crime story that I guarantee you you probably won't forget I've entitled this episode acting out your faith on May 7 2013 a 911 call was placed to an Atlanta dispatcher. The young woman on the other end of the phone was telling the 911 dispatcher that her stepfather was shot. Now, police immediately rushed to the home of Jared Jackson. He lived in Riverside, Georgia. And if you're not familiar with Riverside, Georgia, it's pretty much just 20 to 25 minutes outside of Atlanta. So it's the suburb of Atlanta. Now, once police and emergency responders get there, of course, it is an absolute chaos on scene. Um, Jared has been shot multiple times in his torso and his fiance, Kim Little, is on scene as well as Jared's stepdaughter and Kim's daughter. Now, police are trying to put the foundation of the story together. They want to know from Kim what happened? What was today's event? Run it down. Give us all the details that you can possibly remember. Kim informs police and investigators that that particular day, they went and picked up her daughter from college. It was college break. They went and picked her up. And everything was pretty much standard and routine. Nothing out of the ordinary. They drop off their daughter so she can relax. And then they decide to go and get some food because they're hungry. So they go out of their nice neighborhood there in Riverside. And they're driving a nice vehicle. It was a Porsche SUV. And as they return from getting the food, Kim notices that there's a car following them. And I just want to say that I don't think that Kim or any of us necessarily notice that a car is following us. One, unless we're looking for a car to be following us, right? Or, you know, just two, you have more of a heightened awareness. Because I can say a car can be following me, but I don't think my first thought is that they're coming to get me or they're going to park where I park. I think my first thought is... Okay, maybe they're just going in the same direction that I am. And they happen to be visiting somebody in my vicinity, right? And I think that's what Kim and Jared probably initially thought. But it was a dark vehicle following behind their car. And they didn't know that that car was following them until Jared and Kim parked their Porsche SUV in front of their home, got out of the car And went to the trunk to get miscellaneous miscellaneous items that they left and to gather the food and go into the house. But that's when that dark car parked very close to their home and three young black men got out of the car as well. They immediately approached Jared and Kim and started to brandish their guns and threaten them. And so Jared did what anybody or what we're pretty much all taught to do in a robbery situation. He handed over his wallet. He handed over his keys because they were demanding that he do so. And he Jared hoped that this would bring a close to the robbery situation. Like you got the wallet, you got the keys, leave. However, this hellish nightmare was just getting started because the three men forced Kim and Jared into their home, brandishing their guns, threatening them, wanting more money, more items. And one of the three men was attempting to go upstairs. And if you remember, they had dropped their daughter off at home from college and she was upstairs probably not completely unaware of the chaos that was ensuing downstairs, but slowly being made aware of it. And Jared just wanted to protect her. He did not want those three young men to even make it upstairs. So he kind of figured, okay, this is my time. This is my time to ensure that these men do not get up these stairs and hopefully they just leave. So he tackles the the, one man who was trying to go upstairs, he tackles him and pretty much all hell breaks loose because all of the men then begin to tackle Jared. And it's just a brawl on the, on the foyer and or in the foyer and shots ring out. And Jared is left on the ground as the three young men exit the house at that point and drive off. Now, the police are trying to get a description from Kim of what the men look like. And Kim is not able to say, you know, really good details because she's still in shock. And she's still just trying to just, you know, make this situation make sense in her mind. And all she can tell investigators is that, there were three black men. They looked like they were between the ages of 18 to 24. And she really has no good ID on them and can't really tell them what kind of car it was that was following them. She just knows that it was a dark vehicle. So police kind of have the, the foundation of the story. They they know why the men were there. This was an obvious robbery gone bad. And I feel like out of all the stories that we've told you here on Murder in the Black, we always begin with it possibly being a robbery, but it always turns out to be something else, right? Like the motive. But here, it's a clear cut. the the rob You know, the motive was a robbery. You know, and so police know that, so they kind of took that in their head, and they begin to collect. Evidence on the scene. Now they were able to collect DNA evidence and they also found four shell casings and that belonged to a nine millimeter Glock. So they know what kind of gun was used um, to shoot Jared. And Jared was shot multiple times in his torso. If you don't remember me saying that at the beginning. Now they immediately take Jared to Grady Memorial there in Atlanta to save his life, because at this point, he is in dire straits. They just want to save him. They don't know if he's going to make it, but they want to do everything they possibly can to save him. Now, detectives immediately on scene at night begin to um, canvass the neighborhood Because they want to know if anybody heard anything, if anybody in the neighborhood saw anything. You know, they just need to try to get the leads while this situation has happened fresh. And they want to try to see if anybody saw anything in the neighborhood. Now, no one in the neighborhood saw anything or gave police any evidence that could really help. Um, this investigation go forward. However, the police, as I said, already knew that this was a robbery and believed that they had followed um, or believed that they targeted Jared and Kim because they were driving such a nice car. Now, they immediately go ahead and notify all financial institutions uh, that Jared belonged to because Obviously, they want to make sure that if his card is used that they can immediately kind of track down the people who did this. The next course of action for investigators was to notify Jared's next of kin. Well, Jared's next of kin happened to be one of the premier bishops of a mega church in Atlanta. His name was Bishop Wiley Jackson. And he also had another brother who was a part of his ministry as well. His name was Jarek. And, you know, both men um, were notified at about 2 a.m. that their brother had been in an accident. And they didn't know anything past that, right? And so they immediately prepared and got over to Grady Memorial Hospital. But immediately when they arrive, there's a doctor there waiting to talk to them along with a chaplain. And when you see that, you know, especially with his brother, Bishop Wiley Jackson, like he's a he's a clergyman he's been there at hospitals to deliver bad news to his patrons and so he parishioners I should say and so he knows what this means and the doctor tells both brothers that Jared did not make it the family was in you know denial but also devastated that this could happen and they just don't understand, like, what happened, I think. You know, when, when whenever a situation like, like this happens and somebody dies and there was no—they weren't sick, I think that that is just so—that's such a tough pill to swallow. Death is such a tough pill to swallow anyway, expected or not. But I think in these situations where it's totally unexpected, I just—I— I understand why it's so difficult to process the death. So, his death was ruled a homicide. And, you know, news travels fast, right? But especially travels fast when you are the brother of. A bishop right like and he has a mecca church right there in the city that you've passed away in and so news traveled fast and there started to be whispers and rumors of was he a target because of his brother's ministry like or was he a target because of his brother's notoriety what was it about jared you know but a lot of people what they didn't know <laughs> that not many people knew that Jared was Wiley Jackson's, Bishop Wiley Jackson's brother. Like that was very, that, that wasn't something that Jared went around saying. That's not something that he wore on his, his sleeve or on his coat. Uh, it wasn't a part of his identity. It was like, that's my brother's ministry. And if you were to ask him who, who his brother was, he would tell you. But it wasn't something that he was using as clout. So even though it was his brother, not many people in the city even knew until Bishop Wiley Jackson made this announcement that his his brother died and died of these tragic circumstances, was killed as a result of a robbery. So, you know, that that rumor that he was, you know, he, this might have been. Had something to do with his brother being a bishop or maybe it was tied to his brother being a bishop and something went wrong. He was targeted because of that. That was kind of dispelled very quickly by investigators. Police are investigating this case. And they are kind of coming up with zero. They're coming up with nothing. But one of the good things that they did that I said at the top of the case is they notified both Jared and Kim Little, Jared's fiancés, financial institutions, and told them specifically this, their credit cards, checkbooks, ATM cards have been stolen. However, we do not want to cancel them. We want them to still be active and don't immediately flag the purchases that anybody makes from their cards. We don't want you to do that. We want you to contact us. Let it go through because we want to find out who is responsible for this tragic crime, right? Which I think I I think it's I don't know if this is common practice. I assume so, right? Cuz it's smart to do it. But I think when you immediately cancel your 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 credit cards or ATM cards, when you've been um, robbed, I think it gives you a less chance of catching the perpetrator, right? So police knew this and they actually end up getting a hit because one of Kim's um, checks have been used to make several purchases around the city. And when they go back and they grab the surveillance footage, they see that it's a woman Who's making these purchases? And she's actually using Kim Little's driver's license to go and get money from, you know, to cash a check and and also make other various purchases um, in stores. And she looks like Kim, like she's similar in stature to Kim. And she resembles her. But police are further confused because they're like, we're supposed to be looking for three young men. Who is this lady? Like, who is this? Like, is this a part of a bigger scheme? Like, what is going on? So the police actually do something they usually don't do, at least not immediately. And they put the video out on local TV news stations and begged the public for leads because they needed to identify her. They had no idea who this woman was and they needed help. So the woman actually voluntarily comes into the police station because the streets are talking, right? People are looking for her. She ain't seen herself on the news. She like, I had nothing to do with no murder. I don't, I don't know what this is about. Right. So she goes in and she tells police that actually a man approached her on the street and she paid them money to get the ID and the checkbook, and the ATM and ATM cards, and the credit cards that belonged to Kim Little. So she paid them some money to get her information and use her money. And she said she had never met this man in her life, and that she was a scammer. Like, that's this is what she did. She would get people's information, she would get people's cards, and use it until she can't, couldn't use it anymore. And then she would find somebody else to do this to. Now, I want to remind you, we are in Atlanta, the home of the scammers. <laughs> so this isn't unusual for her. She's like, this is just what I do. Yeah, I had nothing to do with no murder. This is just what I do, y'all. <laughs> so the police say well can you help us ID this guy and so she gave the guys like eight she gave the guys she gave the police a general description and she said well you know he was a black guy he was middle age and once again police are kind of like this is confusing because you know this doesn't match the description that Kim gave us that the men were 18 to 24 these are young men but you know She just admitted that she was a part of buying Kim Little's information, but had no connection to the homicide that took place. And she actually had an alibi and her alibi checked out. So the only thing they could charge her for was ID theft. Right. So detectives are back on the investigation pursuing some of the leads that she was able to give them but still police are kind of stumped they don't really understand what's going on because you know they they ran into this lady who is telling them that a middle-aged man just kind of like sold Kim Little's ID and identification And they feel like they have to go back to the neighborhood. They have to go back to the neighborhood and find out, did anybody in the neighborhood see anything, hear anything? They need to find out who these perpetrators are. After re-canvassing the area, investigators are able to speak to a neighbor who they previously were not able to talk to. And this neighbor offers a piece of information that re-sparks the investigation. They tell them that, hey, like, I have a camera outside of my home. And this is back in 2013, where everybody in the neighborhood did not have ring cameras like they do now. But this particular neighbor did have cameras outside of their home, and they offered that surveillance footage to investigators. And thankfully. Their camera was working and they actually were able to go back to May 7th, the night of Jared Jackson's murder and robbery. They see Jared Jackson's Porsche, you know, ride past this neighbor's house. And shortly after, they observe a black Mustang telling him and they conclude that this black Mustang was the car that had the perpetrators inside. But they hit a stumbling block because this black Mustang does not have any tags. So investigators conclude from all of this information that either this black Mustang was stolen or it was used in a previous crime. And that's why it didn't have tags. So even though they hit a stumbling block, they had a idea of where to start. So they go through their records and they start to look specifically for a black Mustang that was stolen in the following days leading up to Jared Jackson's murder. And then they find a police report where a black Mustang was stolen. And according to the person who owned this black Mustang, um, a group Of three men came out of nowhere brandishing their weapons, threatening them, and they stole the black mustang. Now, police also find a 911 call from someone in Rose Aid Apartments. Now, Rose Aid Apartments were very close to the neighborhood Jerick Jackson lived in. And according to this caller, it was a female caller. She said that someone was in the apartment complex doing donuts, swerving, causing a ruckus in the parking lot. And according to her, she knew that this vehicle was stolen. Like she knew that the vehicle was stolen because the car was swerving and the person who was driving, she said, didn't have a car. So she concluded by all of that information that the car was stolen. Not only did she tell them what apartment complex it was, but she actually gave them the apartment number to the person who was driving this vehicle. She told them it was apartment B215. Now, I don't know if... It's unclear. Let me say that. It's unclear if police actually went to this apartment complex. And by all accounts, from what I've researched, they didn't. But if they had, it's very probable that Jerry Jackson's murder might not have happened So the police follow up on this lead. They actually go and they visit the apartment complex and they go to apartment B215 and they talk to a lady named Anika Jacobs and they tell her everything about this dispatch call, about this black Mustang. And she says, well, yeah, like my boyfriend, Demetrius Morgan, also known as Meek Meek, Was driving a black Mustang, but he's not here. Like she was like, and I don't know anything about, you know, a murder or even the car. I don't know the story, but I do know that, you know, my boyfriend was driving that car. They find out that Demetrius Morgan was 16 years old, so he's a juvenile. And usually, you know, when juveniles are suspected or they're a person of interest, police don't just come out and say their name. But because this investigation was heating up and they felt like they had, like, you know, there was something more to this story, they did release his name to the media. And local news station blasted, you know, um, his name and who he was. And just three days after the police give this information to the media, Demetrius actually goes to see the police himself because, you know, he saw himself on the news and he was kind of confused and he just didn't want to get caught up in anything because everybody was looking for him. in the streets were talking. So he admits to police that he was involved in, you know, stealing this black Mustang. And he tells them that he was with a guy named Gino, Trey, and Big Papa. Okay. These are all their aliases. Okay. And he claims that he didn't commit the crime. He's like, I didn't commit a crime. Like, I didn't do anything. Um, But, you know, this is who I was with. That's all I got to say. Right. So the police then ask for the public's help again. They release these alias names via the media. As investigators are waiting to speak with Gino, Trey Trey, and Big Papa, they actually find the stolen Mustang. They find it in an apartment complex and they match it with its VIN number. They process the car and they find a lot of fingernail clippings inside of the vehicle. So they bag those up and send those off for DNA analysis. Now, the Jackson family is not waiting for the police to crack the case. They actually get involved and they help. Bishop Wiley Jackson immediately goes to media platforms and speaks with the news, asking and pleading with the public to help find out who killed his brother. His other brother, Rodney Jackson, does the exact same thing. and actually offers a reward because they want to incentivize the public so they can bring the people who were involved and who committed the murder of their brother to justice. Now, the police actually get a big break in the case because, as I've already said, they only knew the aliases of Gino, Trey Trey, and Big Papa. They didn't know their real names. But they found out their real names, and Gino's real name was Gino Lewis. They found out his last name. Trey Trey was Montravius Bradley, and Big Papa was Alejandro Pitts. Now, two weeks later, they actually are able to speak to some of the suspects in question. 17-year-old Trey comes in, and he immediately lawyers up. He doesn't speak to them. He doesn't say he knows anybody. He just says, you just need to talk to my lawyer. 19-year-old Gino goes into hiding, and police are unable to locate him. 17-year-old Big Papa speaks to police and says he doesn't know who Demetrius Morgan is. He has no idea, but he does know Gino. And he says, listen, I know some of these people, but I was with my girlfriend on the night in question. So you can check that out, but I wasn't there. So this kind of leaves detectives in a pickle because they don't have enough evidence to charge anybody and they check out Big Papa's alibi and his girlfriend corroborates it. So they can't hold any of the suspects or arrest them. They're waiting on that DNA evidence to come in and they actually were able to get DNA from everyone involved except Gino, of course. So while they're waiting for DNA evidence, they go ahead and actually get cell phone um, records from two suspects. They find out that these two suspects, I want to say, I believe it was Big Papa and Demetrius. They find out that their cell phones track them um, to a tower where Jarek Jackson lived. So it places the suspects at the location. Now they have enough probable cause to make an arrest and to get a search warrant. So on October 1st, 2013, they arrest Demetrius, Gino, Trey, Trey, and Big Papa. After all men were arrested, Gino, Trey, Trey, and Big Papa all denied any involvement in the murder. However, 60 year old Demetrius Morgan decided that it was time for him to talk, and he started singing like a canary bird. He told investigators that he drove the car, he didn't shoot anyone, and he didn't know what was going to happen. He also dropped another bomb. There was a fifth suspect. His name was Felton Lovejoy, and he was involved in the crime as well. Investigators called this a crime of opportunity. Because the way that Demetrius described it is that they saw Jerick Jackson's Porsche, and they said it was a nice car, and they just wanted to hit a lick. They just wanted to get some money, and so they rolled by his house initially, and then parked. All men got out of the car. Felton Lovejoy, who went by the name of Sugar Pop, Big Papa Trey Trey, and Gino, they get out the car, they brandish their weapons, they get the wallets, and they get the keys to the car. That's when Demetrius claims that he goes back and sits in the car as all the men follow Jarek Jackson and Kim Little into the house. And it's at this point that Demetrius knew that something wasn't right and it was going to be trouble. But right after they enter the home, gunshots ring out and all of the men come and get back in this black Mustang and tell him to drive. Now, as he's driving, Demetrius asks all of the men, like, what happened? Who shot? What, what, like, how did this go wrong? But no one admits to the shooting. The next day, you know, they get rid of the black Mustang and they were, they were supposed to act like nothing happened. But that's when Demetrius found out that Jared Jackson died on the news. So police take all of this evidence and they find Demetrius to be very credible. But at the same time, Demetrius is the only one that's talking. So his narrative is what's going to rule the day. So police go and arrest Felton Lovejoy. And before the trial actually begins, they get the DNA clippings analysis back. They take you know, DNA from Felton as well. And they get the DNA analysis back and they find out that those fingernail clippings belong to Felton Lovejoy and Trey Trey. Prosecutors are armed with pretty damning evidence against all five suspects. And Demetrius Morgan's testimony, in addition to the DNA fingernail clippings and the cell phone location that places them at Jared Jackson's home, they would be a fool to go to trial. So in exchange for Big Papa's testimony in court against other defendants, he decides to take a plea deal for 25 years without parole. Now, Felton Lovejoy and Trey Trey, who we know is Montravius Bradley, pled guilty to murdering Jackson, and they both received life in prison. Now, we're up to Gino, who in a separate trial was handed a 25-year sentence for armed robbery. Big Papa testified against him, and so did Demetrius. So, we're now down to Demetrius Morgan. He was found guilty of robbery. And when the prosecutor talked to the Jackson family, especially Bishop Wiley and his brother, Rodney Jackson, they actually spoke on his behalf at trial or when he was about to get sentenced and they asked for leniency. A quote that he said was, we can't preach this stuff and talk about it and not live it. That is what Rodney Jackson, the brother of Jarek Jackson, said. Demetrius Morgan was sentenced to 20 years, followed by five years on an armed robbery and weapons charge for his role in the home invasion. And that is the end of this case. All right, y'all, y'all know it's the takeaway. And I think my takeaway for this week is things are not always as it appears. I know when I was looking this case up, I had no idea. Some of the cases y'all that I that we do on here, we've heard of them and they're just like, you know, ones that we really, really liked and haven't been able to tell. But some cases are brand new. We've never heard of them before. And so when we're researching it, We don't know the ending. And that's how this case was for me. The whole time I was like, what? What is this about? Who did it? Was it his brother? Was he targeted because of his brother? Was he targeted because of his fiance? Like who did it? And in this case, it was really a crime of opportunity. And that saddens me so much because Jerick Jackson wasn't doing anything but getting food and going home, you know? And he literally died protecting the ones he loved but I can say that I believe that Bishop Wiley Jackson and his brother Rodney Jackson and the Jackson family really lived out their faith right like I think it's easy to stand by Christian principles and even moral principles right just doing the right thing it's easy to stand by that when nothing devastating has happened right it's easy to be like oh I forgive I forgive you and I, you know, I I think people deserve second chances. It's easy to do that when nothing has happened. But when things do happen like this situation and your faith is being tested, I think it shows that the Jackson family really stood on their principles. They stood on their faith. And that was demonstrated through them advocating for Demetrius Morgan to get a lenient sentence, not to be sentenced to life, to, to be served justice, right? He needed to have a consequence. But to say, hey, this is a 16-year-old kid who had the bravery to speak up and to help us solve this murder, like to help bring justice to our family. And so I think I really admired that I really admired Demetrius Morgan because in a lot of people's eyes and their perspectives, he was a snitch. But the truth of the matter is, is that he had enough bravery to come forward and say, I didn't know this was going to happen. You know, and he knew he was going to have to face consequences for it. Right. And, um, you have to remember Demetrius came in on his own. Nobody brought him in. He came in on his own. And I'm not saying he deserves all types of gold stars because he was involved in a, a heinous crime. But I think that, you know, you have to say, you know what, he didn't have to do that. And he didn't have to continue to snitch because everybody else involved didn't say anything, right? So I think for me, the testing of the Jackson family's faith, standing on their principles was demonstrated. And I truly admire that. I cannot say that I would be so quick to advocate for somebody I knew has something to do with the crime and the murder of my loved one. So that is something that I really appreciated and admired for sure. So that is the end of our episode today. I hope you guys took something from it, gained something from it, learned something from it. But make sure that you continue to leave us a review rate us five stars if you can please and make sure to share if you care with friends and family till next time friends this is murder in the black md will be back next week bye guys